and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Hey, hey, we're back. Yeah, a uh, little bit of a hiatus there. A little bit of uh... entirely involuntary difficulty scheduling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Syncing up two radically different schedules was no peach, but we're back in the saddle. Yeah, we're doing it today. So, hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we form the duo of half orc bards specialized in armpit percussions. Oh. Of oh, gaming podcasts. If only we were that cool, you know. Wait. I, <laughs> I, I, I get it that we're trying to keep the bar low here because we're very unprofessional, but... Uh, we don't have to keep it going down, do we? <laughs> I was going to call us the indiscriminately placed fireball of gaming podcasts. Oh. <laughs> Feel that backburn. Oh, <laughs> pay a little more attention there <laughs> before you let them rip. The collateral there, damage Merlin. of gaming podcasts. Yeah, that, that works. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for joining us today. We got uh, podcasts lined up, in case you forgot, because it's been a, a minute. Uh, we're going to be talking about historical fiction. Yeah. And sounds a little dry, and sometimes it can be, but we're going to try to spice it up a little bit. Well, not all historical fiction is created equal, okay? It is oh, yeah. a huge genre, you know, in truth, and it, it often is, at least in fantasy circles, overshadowed by the popularity of fantasy fiction and science fiction. However, there is a lot to be gained from historical fiction, and some of it is par excellence. So, yeah, going to be taking a uh, a deep dive into that today. Yeah, all right. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, we've had a several um, interludes where we've talked about uh, some of these books and that we're going to be covering today as well as... Uh, oh, yeah, we brushed up against a couple of them. You know, along some of the more popular stuff like Robert E. Howard. We'll spend a little time talking about it. So it's just not all, you know, okay, well, it's just going to be a history course in the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Okay, well, mm-hmm, but... Okay, but... You, we're going to make it. Trust us, we got you. you. Just stick with us. On this. Yeah, there is some gaming-relevant material to be gained from this because some of those period settings that people are looking for, uh, historical fiction can give you a window into it that is irreplaceable. It, it improves your description and familiarity with that kind of environment as a DM. So, yeah, there is much merit to be gained that is hidden beneath the surface of this topic. Yeah, and if you really want to look at it, it, it has its uh, place in gaming because the Oregon Trail... What? I didn't journey all this way just to die of dysentery? Well, of Dude, course, that never, a lot of people did. So. Never dysentery. Cholera outbreaks. Uh, Mallpox, diphtheria, a lot of other maladies befell the travelers going to Oregon. But yes, dysentery seemed to be the one that everybody cannibalism. Donner party. So, all right. Well, anyway, we're gonna. uh, (laughs) At least Oregon Trail wasn't that gruesome. Oh yeah, they they didn't have the. That was a mod that uh, was begging to be made. I guess. (laughs) I really. Oh my gosh, that would be great if I could just tweak Oregon Trail. You were trapped in the snowy pass. <laughs> the Donner Party ensues. All of you are eaten. Do you, oh, yeah, it just offers you always do you eat the dead. <laughs> yes, no, no. <laughs> yeah. You die of hunger yeah. and starvation. Oh, wow. Man. All right. Yeah, take Yeah, you get three passes at the cannibalism. Hey, I think we're on to something here. So uh, let's <laughs> let's refocus. Refocusing uh, back to the main part, which is, yeah, so uh, it's been a minute for the podcast, so if you, in case you forgot, historical fiction is what the topic is of du jour, but what it lies into the future? Hmm. Well, oh. for that, we will have to consult the Astrogalomancer. Oh, you nailed it. You got Astrogalomancer right on, like, first try, and you were so tough on yourself, like, the I last am. couple I'm, of times, like, I'm oh, you know, too many syllables. No, you you nailed it. It's the Astragalomancer, and you got it perfect. So, uh-huh. hear them bones a-rattling? The dice. The dice tell the Astragalomancer that in our next podcast, we're going to have a look at magic items, uh, the actual meta topic of what shapes and forms they take, 
uh, the ways in which they are made use of and represented in a variety of different games. The very concept itself of the magical item. And it has been an evolving topic. Yeah. It's the way these things were presented 40 years ago uh, and made use of by players is pretty different now. Yeah. And how it's changed and how they make and break a game. I mean, without magic items, you would seem a little less fantastic. Oh, well, yeah. where would you be without a magical sword or a shield that protects you? Or a suit of armor that seems invulnerable. I mean, and, and in that, there's a certain type of, like, mentality that's gone from plus one plate mail to maybe, uh, I don't know, the invulnerable coat of iron. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there are obviously, like, scales and levels of awesomeness. Uh, but, you know, in, in their initial inception... Magical items were comparatively few and far between. There wasn't a vast variety. Uh, But when Dungeons & Dragons took off, the field of goodies to acquire rapidly expanded. Uh, And in some respects, there has been a slight contraction, uh, you know, as some of the previous editions had such a huge variety uh, that were covered in, you know, a great many books uh, and a lot of source material. And now, you know, as we've moved into the fifth iteration, uh, you've you've seen a slight contraction to simplify things, uh, just more like themes uh, or core concepts, but the actual functionality has changed. So we're going to look at anything related to the magic item itself and not just in one system. How are they represented? How are they, you know, made use of? What are the mechanics uh, that are involved in the concept of the magic item, both in D&D and in a wide variety of other games. All right. Well, let's save that. You're dear to the gamer's heart, man. Our favorite kind of loot. Right. I got a magic item! (laughs) All right. So we'll uh, delve into that next week. So tune in for that. Yeah. I mean, hear me get excited about a rope of climbing. Wow. What a a way to date myself. Tune in. Yeah. Nobody tunes in. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, listen. (laughs) There's no channels. So it's just typing. Yeah, so whatever it is you do, um, go with that analogy. We'll just... Uh, <laughs> type us in. Yeah, type us in. <laughs> yeah, Click run. here. Click here. Yeah, so... <laughs> oh, well, let's see. What else has been happening? It's been quiet in the gaming front, which has been a welcome relief for many. Uh, oh, yeah. I did see that... Uh, just as a little plug here, uh, I don't want to kind of make light of this, but uh, Owen Casey uh, Stevens has uh, been diagnosed with cancer. I put the link up on our uh, oh, no. Facebook page for the Dice is Screaming. Um, he's offering a Pathfinder 2E bundle for about 10 bucks with medical costs right now. So if you want to get yourself some 2E content from Rogue Genius Games, just go over there and uh, click on that and uh, help support a veteran gamer. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Help them out in their time of need. And get something for your troubles. You yeah. It's, I, uh, it's pretty good. So win, well, win. Even if you don't uh, like Pathfinder 2E, you might know somebody does. So if nothing else, just uh, link and share it. Yeah. Because that'll help out. Make an awesome gift. All right. And uh, so on to our action OGL news segment. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right, so yet what's been going on in the gaming circles lately? What's been making around? So, you know, there's some um, been some good stuff. I see that uh, Pathfinder uh, or Paizo, excuse me, for Pathfinder has been uh, keeping the ball rolling. Uh, they just announced that their Tianzia source books are going to be coming out uh, pretty soon. They're announced. Uh, they said that it's been kind of mistakes that they haven't covered the more uh, Asian-themed areas of their world. Hmm. And so now they're redressing that. Looks like they've got some great new ideas for races and character options or ancestries, as they say. Still uh, working with that word, too. So, uh, but yeah. Hengi Yokai. Oh, yeah. Hengi Yokai and uh, uh, Tanuki, those big raccoon dogs. Oh, man. Yeah. As a character. <laughs> just basically, you know, <laughs> trash panda on an adventure. 
Well, raccoon dogs. But yeah, I imagine, you know, in 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 the aspect that they handled, Trash Panda would not be a, uh, if you're familiar with some of the um, elements of Japanese mythology that involve them. Yeah, Trash Pandas would fit them. They're very weird. Using their testicles as drums. I what? Yeah, that's a whole thing. You know what? I'm going to give that a pass. Right. right. Like that is I, it's I, something. And when you, once you seem like that's too much weirdness to intake properly, uh. <laughs> man. All right. Well, at least now they made it their belly and I'm, I'm livable with that. Now trash pandas, they shall be. Uh, yeah. No, I, I gotta say, uh, good for them. You know, they're, they're touching on some new material that, that was not really well covered in the previous iteration of the game. So yeah, they had the Dragon just, Isles. And I'm Minkai. always happy to see people drafting brand spanking new material as opposed to, well, here's like adjusted for the new rule set. Here is the same book we published five years ago. Yeah, okay, they coast on that for a while, but that's only going to get you just so far. All right. So it's it shows that they are on point and doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and getting new material that nobody has ever seen out there before. Uh, bravo. Well done. So I'd also like to say that uh, probably coming up here, the Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which releases in uh, March 31st, the end of the month here. Yeah, and they are beating up the trailers now. Okay, yeah, and now the reviews to, too. I resented the like, you know, oh, here's a trailer like more than half a year before the actual film comes out. I hate that. And I mentioned that uh, quite some time ago in a previous podcast. Do not tease the mic like, hey, it's only eight more once until Christmas. Oh, shut up. However, we're now down to just a matter of a couple of weeks. You are totally welcome to blitz me with as many trailers as you please. I am open to all of them like that. You know, like my, my edict has been rescinded since at least six weeks ago. Vermont High. Yeah. I, I'm no longer annoyed by trailers. And I have been well rewarded. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I, I don't even care. There are people who are like, ah, the same people who are furious that uh, Druid can't do that with an owlbear are the same people going, Oh, I do not want to displace your beast. No, no. Look, if you made up your mind <laughs> two years ago that no matter what happened, you were going to, you know, defecate on this as much as possible, then that is probably where you still stand. Uh, everybody else is pretty much going, yeah, that looks pretty cool. I, I can't wait. March 31st. I'm saving that day. I'm taking it off. When the New York Times... Movie reviewer said, I don't understand anything about Dungeons and Dragons other than the peripherals. But this was a very fun watch. Oh, oh they, they, yeah, Variety. Yeah, seen. Variety also gave it uh, good reviews. Oh, you know, Metacritic is it's pretty high. You know, it's uh, I think it's 85% or higher. I can't remember when I last looked at it. It might have risen or fallen as review bombers are now. Kind of as Mike and Tones flocking around it, trying to, ah, you know, like vultures. Yeah, see if we can uh, defecate upon this and make it drop because, you know, we don't like it for various reasons. Yeah, okay. Look, it's a movie. It's not going to do everything that you want because it, you're getting a freaking displacer beast and a lot of creatures that we've only seen in the marginal area of the D&D lore. Gelatinous cube. Right. And, a few players would nod and smile. And, and even a few like me would be like, oh, A.E. Von Goat wrote the uh, dis the Displacer Beast. And that, you know, it, it made its way into D&D by uh, the gestalt infusion of that early uh, mixture of science fiction fantasy reading. Sure, you know, I'm, I'm that guy that could tell you where it came from and has actually read the book. I still got it on the bookshelf over there. But the main point is, is yeah, it kind of works a little bit like that. It, you know, phases in and out of existence 
and or displaces itself almost like a monstrous version of Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> that when you interact with it, it could completely change how time works for it or you. Its precise location is exceedingly difficult to do to determine. It is perpetually uh, making itself appear to be, you know, either further away or closer than. So it it's just an uh, excuse generation. But you know, I didn't go into expecting this movie to have absolute perfect gameplay accuracy. I, you know, like I, I had no illusions about that. Mm -hmm. uh, my experience across like 40 plus years of watching fantasy movies, you know, like my threshold is much, much lower. There are a lot of other sins that I expected that do not appear to be rearing their head at all. Uh, and believe me, we have seen the stinkers. We've, we've covered a few in some of the movie episodes, but you know, there's even worse out there. I just well, what gets so me is some of these detractors love Hawk the Slayer. And I love Hawk the Slayer, all right? I, I love it because it approached it unabashedly and just basically said, we're going to make this work. Okay, you love Hawk the Slayer. You realize, yeah, that was, but that was made back in the early 80s. Absolutely. But you know what? It was still made. And it kind of stands as, to a certain extent as it was intended. Here's nowadays... We're in 2023, and here's a movie made in contempt with contemporary effects and contemporary acting actors and special effects. So here we are, and you're getting it. Don't be uh, so condescending to something because it doesn't accurately represent when your beloved movies of old weren't very good when you really took it apart and so you just glossed over it. oh it was just fun you know it was just something that you enjoyed well here you are just take that same mindset and apply it to this oh it does That's remind me it reminds me a little of a discussion that i was i was having a couple of days ago uh, about the you know core difference in perception uh, that a person has between youth mm. and you know adulthood and old age which and frankly, it, it is hormone related. Uh, and, you know, as <laughs> you know, when you're going through adolescence, I'm tell you about hormones and adolescence, the, in, the intensity of what you experience is insanely different from the way you experience something as a 50 year old. So this ennui that a lot of guys are like everything today just sucks. Yeah, they have this joyless view. Uh, and contempt for everything because nothing is giving them that high that they remember at age 14. Mm. Like I went to see just an absolute pig of a 3D movie, uh, Treasure of the Four Crowns. I was 14. Uh, basically, I was just high on hormones and going, ah, explosions, so happy. You know, that, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. That is awesome. It's great that those memories forge in our, our heads at that time of our lives. Uh, but letting that poison us to such a degree, they're like, nothing is good. Nothing will ever be good. Everything is crap. Only the wonderful things from my childhood are of any value whatsoever. That is just robbing yourself. You're not just like crapping all over everybody else's day you're stealing the ability to enjoy things yourself yeah you're hurting uh, so you have to fight that much harder you know past a certain age mm -hmm. to open up and be welcoming to a, a new movie or a new show and i work on that because i have the very problem that i have described like i i have caught myself going <laughs> and i work on it okay this is yeah. this is me working on me and you know mm -hmm. i encourage other people by all means you know yeah. try to get back to that open-minded enjoyment of a thing just because it's new you haven't seen it before relax don't look for ways to be upset and furious look for ways to enjoy yourself and be happy uh, certainly going to improve your overall average daily experience look i'm not going to i didn't bring you here just to watch you die that's why i'm going to leave the room i mean <laughs> listening to you grant deliver that line I was like, yeah, that's... 
Yeah, I was a little iffy on the Hugh Grant subject. I hadn't really seen much footage of him. Uh, and, oh, my God, was he ingratiating. Uh, he is just villainous. I, wonderful villainous. Like, <laughs> um, you know, lawful a-hole. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to this. I really am. March 31st can't come fast enough. Yeah, and I've... Uh... We've been talking a little bit about the merchandising. and I, For once, you know, don't mind it. Uh, we got the fleece throw. I'm wearing my uh, ampersand slimps, slips. Excuse me. I'm a Pete's. Oh. And uh, look at that. An old dice. <laughs> 20 cider. Yeah, just <laughs> roll for shoe. They have roll for shoe. <laughs> Randomly determined footwear. <laughs> Table 17B. It, bring, it, it brings me back to some memories of when D&D was being marketed uh, commercially back in the Yes. Years. TSR did go through a phase where they uh, were... You could get D&D beach towels. Oh, man. You could get D&D uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons wallets. <laughs> Scratch and sniff stickers. Shrinky Dinks. You remember those, yeah. Oh, man. A lot of stuff that they did. And, you know, it, yeah, it kind of gets forgotten. But, hey, it was a thing back then. And, you know, we kind of looked at it. Yeah, we're being marketed to. And we were cynical then, too. But um, sometimes it's nice to be catered to. It, it's nice. Uh, I don't know. My wife is kind of on the fence about the uh, huge die 20 dice bucket or dice bucket, popcorn bucket which will then obviously be a dice bucket afterwards. But uh, at NEMC theaters, they have a D&D exclusive where they have like little wooden drinking mugs oh. or full wooden drinking mugs and uh, a popcorn bucket, one of those huge ones. You know, oh, yeah, 800 calories per <laughs> handful. <laughs> Covered with butter, more salt. Um, I just love that like as a pair of Gen Xers, uh, we spent the majority of our lives being absolutely and irrevocably ignored. We were of no statistical significance whatsoever. And on the rare occasion that we were noticed, it was just long enough for some boomer to go, slackers! Uh, or, you know, for somebody much younger than us to mistake us for boomers. Which, <laughs> like, as though Gen X didn't even exist in the first place, despite, you know, basically being the generation that did all the entrepreneurial stuff that developed the internet. Uh, that was Gen X, you know, the all of the gaming and wonderful stuff that you have today started out of that generation who were left to their own devices, which may, far too long. Yeah, may not have been the best choice. You know, <laughs> maybe you know, like there should have been a grown up in the room, but uh, also punk rock and other things. Oh, yeah. But... Uh, but after a lifetime of being ignored, to be catered to as much as I almost like I strive to resent it. I, I feel like I should be opposed on principle. There's a part of me that is deeply flattered. Like I'm, I'm not used to this much positive attention. I, I don't know how to handle this. I, I'm feeling very awkward right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to be hostile. I, I, I want to be standoffish. Where were you before, man? But the ads come up to you and they're like, hey, you seem pretty cool. I'll bet you'd like this. Like, yes, yes, you had me at hello. A jewel encrusted <laughs> die twenty popcorn bucket. Uh, I mean, I just, I my mind boggles. Like, yeah, obviously, I'm not going to shop for everything that they put out there, but uh, the the sense of being, yeah, to you know, well, especially to touching. a game that has brought us so much a joy and fun over the years. Um, so. Yeah, before we get into uh, our break coming up on it here, I think that'll do it for some of our TND news. We're just uh, kind of free balling there on the uh, whole Dungeon Dragons movie uh, uh, and yeah. some of the attractions. But uh, we need to talk about Dungeon 23 because we certainly didn't do that the last couple of times. So uh, I hand it off to Mike, uh, my portion. And I put it up on the Facebook page, what we had gotten done so far. So it's looking pretty fun. And uh, in the week to come, there will be some updates. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I'll be taking back over for pretty soon here. I'm working my way into level three. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you got the second level or the level two all done? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, level two is done. Level three has begun. Uh, and, you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, the gloves are slowly coming off. Yep. I, I liked where you went with your choices for encounters. Uh, they seemed, you know, a couple of them seemed just a little tougher than, like, I sometimes think first levelers can handle. First or second. But not by much, you know, not by much at all. I think it's... Yeah, you might have to actually run. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you there, have to flee. there are a couple of encounters that like not everything in this level is your level or is like your challenge rating uh, so exercise discretion uh, as you please and having that band-aid ripped off does kind of free me a little bit like okay I, I was trying to keep the kid gloves on in the opener you know like just just make it about tests and like yeah the first the, that above ground level is pretty easy I mean it's not okay you can get into some trouble yeah. Well, you more or less can get there. Now, you know, the opener is, is that uh, there's some basic monsters that you're not going to have too much problem with. But there are a few. Yes, there's, uh, I placed a water weird in there and a uh, living crystal statue. Yeah, like the water weird, you know, for level two characters, that's a walk away moment, you know. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not, we're obviously not keeping secrets because this is a creative process and we're like. The kimono is fully open on this one. Yeah, beat me to it. Oh. Yeah, it, it, the kimono, yeah, not even belted. You know, everything is just flapping in the breeze. Oh. Everything. Yeah. So we want to share everything with you our process. Everything is flapping in the breeze. So. The emphasis. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but yeah, it's great. I, I like how it's coming along. And like I have a much freer hand. I was very cautious, I think, in that first upper level because I wasn't sure how much force to level against people. Old now, school uh, essentials, basic uh, classic Dungeons and Dragons adventure first level adventures are very fragile. Yeah. Clerics don't have access to spells. A magic user only gets one. Um, fighters are pretty much your the most active participant. Yeah, you fighters, dwarves, and elves are going to be your. That explains my caution. I mean, you know, I'm not, I didn't exercise caution on level one uh, for no reason at all. It was precisely because in OSR, there are some, you know, very different limits that impact on play. So that level one, yeah, that, that can be like a critical zone, you know, like a one wrong encounter and oops, party over. Uh, so I, I did put the kid gloves on. Did we get down to level three? Yeah, there will be no kid gloves here. So oh yeah, that's that's pretty much that's level over. three is the buckle up because this is going to get rough. Yeah, but my elf is only level two. Well, sticking the back back in the party, nightmares because you're going to have to be wielding that bow a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, point and shoot. Get used to magic missile. I know. <laughs> so yeah, the, uh, it's friend. your friend. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love uh, OSE. I love the uh, classic D and D experience with just the uh, yeah, seven classes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. But this can also be easily modified to advanced Dungeons and Dragons or whatever uh, old school fantasy system. You it want is do. wonderfully compatible. The OSR, uh, you know, or OSE old school essentials um system has the virtue of simplicity uh, the second virtue of familiarity to those who remember the uh red box and blue box sets mm -hmm. of basic expert and all of that uh, and then it's it's only real deficit is the uh, I would I would say that there are some limits on how far you can go with this. Yeah. Uh, it, what makes it ideal for this is that it's perfect for campaign play. Uh, in yeah, short it's a, campaigns, not the twentieth level epics. Well, we're definitely going to get up to the twentieth levels because you're going to see us get to the lowest levels here. But I'll bring us into the first segment. So. We're going to close out our Dungeon 23 review and uh, just stick around for the next part. So, see you in a minute. 
And welcome back. Yeah, we uh, ran right to the wall on that one on the last episode there. Or uh, last segment, I should say. So, <laughs> Down to that last couple of seconds. I was like, uh, maybe we'll get it out. I don't know. Yeah, we did. So, Hey, uh, so we're back talking about stuff. Petting cats and tucking 50s. Um, we're here to talk about some historical fiction. So... Prepare the drama mean and get your pillow. Oh jeez. Man, I I don't like take that stance at all. Okay, when when I think historical fiction, I'm thinking of the great tales of action and adventure that just happened to not include magic. It literally folds right into the fantasy zone. because uh, it's a historical great... thing. It yes. You, anytime you start talking about history, you make the joke that it's time for everybody to Get comfortable. Settle in. You're going to be here for a while. It's a binky and a nap and yeah. a juice box. Oh, that's yeah, terrible. Right. And that's, that's the way you know you want to have it. And that's a great attitude to have. I wish more people would have that. But unfortunately, uh, there's not much money in history. People don't like to be reminded of the past. Or at least in the ways that the past should be remembered. Uh, <laughs> so you don't repeat it. Uh that said, yeah, um, we're talking about historical fiction, and primarily what we talk about with historical fiction. You know, you could talk about uh, the West. That seems to be pretty popular, the Wild West. Uh, oh, sure. Some Civil War stuff uh, has uh, made the rounds. Um, with varying degrees of success and uh, certainties, a few are better than others, and some are just tropes or racist diatrebs. Oh, I wish the South had really won. Then we'd really want to put it to those people. Uh-huh. Yeah, all right. Look, historical fiction does have the theoretical potential to run into cringe-worthy revisionism. Yes. Uh, no, I was totally like this back then. Mm, not so much. Uh, highlighting Do you like cholera? Answer. Because you're going to get a lot of... Do you, do you like infection from wounds? I mean, do you know how, like, bad arrow wounds were back then? It basically was a death sentence to a slow death or a period where you would look back with great trepidation. Like, oh, yeah, horrible. there's still reasonable certainty that like, ultimately it was an arrow injury that uh, healed poorly that killed Alexander the Great. Uh, that, you know, it was probably a fat embolism, uh, which, you know, <laughs> yeah, getting an arrow in, in a... And then having it pushed the rest of the way through and then broken off and, you know, pulled out of you. Uh, and the wound heals naturally, but the clot slash embolism builds up in there. And of course, it, they say the night before he was found dead, uh, he had been, you know, uh, pouring a lot of wine. Okay, I, he may have been dealing with some pain too, but, uh, you know, he had a goodly amount to drink, which... You have an injury like that, and there's a risk of a fat embolism. You you really don't want to be doing that. So <laughs> he, uh, you know, he did. It, it followed the recipe for. Oh yeah, this will totally kill you. Uh, which is why he did not live to a ripe old age. But historical fiction, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, you can have things. I would like to say, start us out by saying, kind of where a lot of people understand historical fiction or where it was made more popular was a novel uh, Ben-Hur. Oh, perfect example. And while it's a little fanciful in some of its uh, scope and recollection of events, it wasn't necessarily too off base. There was a lot in there that could have happened or maybe could have happened, but you accept that going in, that this is a work of fiction. Primarily, oh, and yeah. it's set in a historical era that you more or less try to remain faithful to. Now, there's some biases in that book, and I'm not trying to really uh, dig at them. I, for the most part, enjoyed it. Um, obviously, I've seen the movie first. And then later, you know, like, oh, I guess I'll get around to reading this. And, <laughs> you know, there are parts that definitely I, uh, you know, skimmed through. Like, okay, we're just going to talk about a lot of travel here and uh, how people made wine. All right. Fascinating. <laughs> just like with Moby Dick. But that's where the next one I would like to bring up is 
um, historical fiction has also, uh, with Moby Dick, has become a little bit more enlightened. Um, there's a lot of existentialism that has been slapped on, I think, to Moby Dick, which was essentially a novel about a man's odyssey in the early whaling days. Or the later part. I'm, yeah, I'm based sorry. on a true story, which the true story was actually far more horrific. So, but yeah, I mean, in, of course, Melville transforms the novel into something that is also about, you know, being poisoned by your own obsession. Uh, you know, the the insatiable quest for revenge. Call me Ishmael. <laughs> Love that opening. Yeah. Oh, I, I. But what we're going to focus on here is primarily uh, the medieval period where most of the fantasy games take place. And with these fantasy settings, there's an acknowledgement of or allusion to the... This is the way things were. Castles and uh, boats and baileys. Various types of crude and primitive uh, construction techniques and harvesting. And that's the backdrop that you kind of put in. They had flying buttresses. <laughs> I just wanted to say, flying yeah, flying buttress. buttresses. For I no mean, reason. That's the whole thing. So when you put that together, you know, that's where, as a fantasy gamer, I got drawn to, is I wanted to know, like, okay, if we remove like cure disease and uh, neutralize poison from this a lot, purify food and drink, um, <laughs> I, I might want to start, you know thinking about inhabiting a world like this so what would be the more non-fantastic elements that I would populate and use and pull from this to kind of make my fantasy game seem more authentic or realistic <laughs> how do you know he's the king he's the one who's no go shit all over him exactly ah, it, yeah uh, there's such a thing as too much realism okay I'm not saying every portion of historical fiction is worthy of harvest for a fantasy campaign because you can yank a lot of the glory and fun out of it uh, if you go wildly realistic. Uh, if, um, if, on the other hand, you have players who particularly enjoy that kind of setting, okay, if yeah, they harn, want the grit uh, Warhammer Fantasy realism, role play. let them have it. No harm done. However, uh, caveat emptor, buyer beware. You know, this is one of those things where uh, your experience may vary. So let's let's try an example of that. Uh, that yeah, then let's put it. Um, I think as gritty goes, he's. Uh, I would almost uh, have to break out of the literary genre mm. to get the uh, flesh and blood. Oh, very uh, gory, but you know, somewhat historical. Obviously, uh, a little, a little too fanciful for that fictional category. Look up our previous episode, the Rutger Hauer Power Hour. There is some cursory mention of flesh and blood to the movie there. Yeah, definitely want to uh, check that out. Uh, not Gritty not, with extra grit. Yeah, throw some extra grit in there. Oh. <laughs> the feast scene. Oh, it still makes me ill. Uh, um, but yeah, if you put, you take some of the fantastical elements out, um, yeah, it gets grim real quick. But like you said, if you take it too far, it I think it breaks apart I think the balance was struck, as we mentioned with Ben-Hur, Alexander Dumas. Oh, now, see, this this is the one that uh, we had a little trouble on whether we should include it or not, but it is an action-adventure tale written not long after uh, its actual time and place. So we're, we're talking, you know, what was it, uh, the 1600s yeah. in France, and Alexander Dumas's father was, in fact, the basis for many of his tales. Because, <laughs> wow, did Dumas's dad have a wild time of it. You know, like rising fame and fortune, war and opportunity, and, you know, uh, just this, you know, uh, just crashing surf. You know, just the wave goes high, and then <laughs> crashes low, and then back again, and ups and downs, danger, thrills. And Alexander Dumas grew up hearing these tales and developed his signature, uh, you know, style. And eventually that gave us the Three Musketeers, mm -hmm. which, okay, just because it was only written, you know, like less than a half century after the appropriate time period, 
does not mean that it's not historical fiction. It's accessible today, and it represents a swashbuckling, uh, politically intrigue-filled time uh, that you know predates the Iron Man and the Iron Mask. And was there? That yeah. was one of the big conspiracy theories back in the day. Was was Louis the Fourteenth? Did he have a, a, a twin? Because there was a night and day shift at a certain point in his rulership. Oh yeah, he started out petulant and uh, uncertain and almost uh, fragile as a ruler, and seen this absolutely bad fit, and then steps into a different role where he's a lot more reserved, uh, conciliatory, and measured in his responses. Aliens. Oh, well, no, 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 not. We're not going into conspiracies or anything like that. Let's let's just cut that off right there. We're just saying that that was a matter of discussion among some people. Well, people don't that, experience personal growth. It, it's got to be aliens. So, well, and he took it and ran with it and made a nice story out of it, which I think is very fitting. Yeah, but those are great pieces of historical fiction, even though they were in fact written by an actual, you know, historical. Figure. It was almost writing in contemporary stance. Yeah. But, you know, not far removed, at least. So, yeah, we talk about uh, Alexander Dumas, but I would like to talk about uh, Frank Yearby. Oh, yeah. We'll start out with that one. I like that one because just like with Dumas, there's some brushes with historical, actual, real-life figures that inhabited those spaces. Yeah. Yearby. He was the author of... Uh, the Saracen Blade, Blade, yes, and which was made into a movie uh, featuring a very young, um, oh, uh, Fantasy Island, uh, Wrath of Khan. Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, thank you. I was having a name blank out. But a very young Ricardo Montalban was featured in that movie <laughs> in black it up. and white. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it's a little painful to watch, a little cringeworthy, because he was very young, and it was Hollywood of the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, but this, this is a book that dates back that far, and at the time it was released, uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I would contend that Frank Yerby was one of the best of the historical fiction authors of the time period. He had a wonderful uh, facility with language. Uh, it was not like just your ridiculous period setting bodice ripper type stuff that, I mean, there's plenty of that out there. But this well, there was romance. There was there was a romantic subplot halfway. Through. Oh sure. But it like you said, it's not a Bodice Ripper. Even Alexander Damas would have seemed a little bit more uh, ribald. So end of the 1400s, the Renaissance proper has not yet fully blossomed, but the the precursors are there. Yeah, late uh, medieval period. Frederick, you know, young Frederick, the uh, Hohenstaufen, who would soon be the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, and be quite a vigorous reformer in terms of encouraging education and literacy and curbing the authority of minor nobility. Uh, he was going to be a enormous figure. Bringing uh, the Margraves under heel. Yeah. Uh, ending the age of castles uh, where and private armies and, you know, moving power back towards the state and away from disparate continually warring camps, uh, which honestly sapped Europe of a great deal of its strength. So the principal character, uh, Pietro di Donati, is the son of a, well, a blacksmith who is uh, cruelly treated. Uh, and the nobility in the area uh, <laughs> wanted the you know right of the first night uh, with this blacksmith's wife and so he and his wife flee together uh, and this incurs great wrath uh, because you know serfs and servants do not simply ignore uh, their lords uh, the tyrannical nature of like you dare to defy me i will like literally hunt you down to make an example of you uh, so they had to live far away and Pietro winds up raised by a uh, highly educated Jewish man uh, 
that was a friend to the family. Mm -hmm. And he is in Palermo, Sicily, far from danger as a very small child and is raised in luxury and with tutors and, you know, is familiar with multiple languages and all of the habits of nobility, even though he has no title, which that was a thing that if you're from a wealthy family in Italy at that time, at the cusp of the Renaissance, yeah, you, you could have all of these trappings of great wealth. And of course, you know, in the familiar theme, uh, there's the you know humble origin, the rise, uh, the crash, and then the rise again and crash again, uh, back and forth as he, you know, falls in love and is, you know, uh, thwarted uh, by wonderfully wicked people. Like you really, you get a good feeling for who your enemy is here. <laughs> uh, but ups and downs, highly historical accurate. And Strange that a lot of them seem to be affiliated with the church in some way. Lots of, well, I mean, certainly with at least the approval. You know, yes. the, the stamp of like, well, you're the noble, so we put our stamp of approval on whatever it is you do, and that's okay. Uh, but all against the backdrop of Frederick Hohenstaufen's rise to Holy Roman Emperor, uh, and the incipient renaissance that is taking place in the background. Uh, many of the characters within are very familiar. But he is, Frank Yerby is also the author of a number of other historical novels, totally worth your time. Isn't the Burnish Blade one of them? Uh, that's Lawrence Schoonover. All right, so yeah, let's and talk about And that's more medieval. Yes, that, that moves us to the other part, which is, yeah, uh, I read it, but it's been years ago. But the Burnish Blade was one I really liked. I like talking. Um, about the techniques of not only Damascus steel, but the way of etching it so that the pattern of the Damascus was made visible in the blade and gave it a unique and signature mark, as well as a, a resilient strength that almost bordered on the fantastical. Like yeah, this other iron and steel that had been worked out. And this that's essentially the core of the novel, is this craft is not inherently European. No. Uh, the Damascus steel, the uh, burnishment is all from a more from handed from the Moors who inherited it from someone else. Well, it's an Italian armor living in France because right. he made um, an unfortunate comment about uh, uh, a noble back home and they had to leave very quickly. You uh, need to get out and right his, now. His Turkish servant uh, and they wind up adopting a little orphaned French kid whose parents were killed by bandits. And they met him on the way to yeah, witness okay. the burning of uh, the Maid of Orleans. Yeah, well, Jean d'Arc. Jean d'Arc is about to be burned at the stake, and this kid has just been orphaned, and he stumbles upon the long line of like pilgrims on the way to the event. Uh, and a priest notices him and hears his, you know, terrible tale of having lost his parents and uh, the priest knows the armorer and his family and says, well, you know, they have no children of their own uh, and they're well off. I will impose upon them and say, like, this would be a good and charitable thing for you to do. Well, you know, it works out great. So Pierre uh, goes from orphan. Pierre, that's his name. To, I term yeah, right. from orphan to uh, child. Yeah, and there he has an unfortunate encounter. Well, I mean, fortunate. Unfortunate that they cross paths with my favorite topic of metal songs from Celtic Frost, Guy de Ray, the French marshal. Yeah, Guy de Ray, uh, the, or I believe in the book they use Derets, uh, D E R E T Z, but it is that, yeah, de Ray, that's an you know, Anglicization of you know, Guy de Ray, the field marshal of France, who, you know, when they opened up his tower, like just bones, bones down in the basement, you know. Uh, but yeah, narrow escape from that, uh, even as a youth. But uh, yeah, the again, brushing of historical figures with dark and controversial past, uh, they did a great job on that one. I love, liked the uh, tale of travel that wasn't too overly contrived with also just the right amount of detail. And that's where I was getting is like, this is not only fodder for 
the imagination, but it's how to present the material that you're given, whether you're using a pre-prepared fantasy setting or one that you're making up your own. This is the way you want to uh, give and acknowledge the level of detail as uh, the players travel, who they encounter, the things that they eat, and then the way the things are done. Customs, habits, traditions, they all play a part in this. And uh, I think that'll lead us to our next one to give us uh, a little walk-in is The Walking Drum, which is uh, yeah. Louis L'Amour. Now, Louis L'Amour is infamous or famous for, however you want to look, his westerns. The Sackett Saga being one of my uh, enjoyable ones it was something that uh, when I was younger, I really put a lot of work into trying to understand what was the fascination of my grandfather with the, this author, you know, what what drew him in. And it was just those customs, traditions, and that you learn as they uh, the family goes through its travels, that they make alliances, enemies, and have roots in this area. And this is not just a place that they inhabit, but it's a place that takes over them. And um, it puts it at odds with some of the uh, problems with indigenous folk at that time. Is like, yeah, but a lot of people don't look at it as they took it away from people, but they became one with the land. That they uh, that they loved it as much as everyone else and wanted to make it their own. So that and make said, no mistake about Louis L'Amour. Uh, for those who think, oh, that's the Western author and like that's his one trick pony. Oh no, oh no. He was wonderfully literate on the times and places that he studied for his books. Yeah, and the walking drum may sound familiar to what uh, we just talked about with the previous two. You know, once again, they uh, forced to flee from the coast of Brittany to from a baron, the Tamorain, and who killed his mother, and seeking his lost father who has been sold into slavery. Uh, the oh, Martharin Carbochard. Um, as it would be more appropriate to say it in French, um, starts as a slave and ends up being a navigator on the ship, saving them during a storm, and uh, gets involved with a Moorish girl, Aziz, and her companions, and uh, frees them, and uh, they <laughs> then become pirates. He, uh, yeah, up and he down. sells his captors into slavery <laughs> to the other Moors, and uh, you know then. Um, Starts freeing other slaves and uh, selling the slavers. That, that's his racket. I, I was like, okay, I, I see where you're going here. Freeing slaves and enslaving the slavers. You know, nice little twist. <laughs> but huh. Now, I uh, noticed that with the... Uh, you, you'll notice a recurring pattern that is specific to the historical fiction genre. In the absence of the fantastic... Uh, what you have is the familiar, like rise and fall, and rise and fall. The, you know, humble origin, great difficulty, uh, you know, major obstacles, and then, uh, you know, merit uh, and ability and persistence ultimately lead to the great rewards. So, you know, th that is also present in Louis Lemoore's work. Yeah, so Mathurin, uh, he escapes, he keeps going, and uh, once he is imprisoned by Prince Ahmad for one of the slavers that they sold, finds out it's a relative of his, he gets captured. And, um, he escapes with, uh, aided by a woman, uh, he chants upon Sophia, and also uh, goes to Cordoba, travels across Spain, seeking his father everywhere, and finding adventure as both a... He's very uh, well... Very quick on the uptake and learns trades and new ways to uh, find his way in whatever situation he is. Um, sides with a group of oppressed peasants on a caravan to Paris, leads a revolt, gets recognized as a leader of men, uh, then goes to the Netherlands and uh, they join together to travel to Kiev. And so now he's went across Europe, uh, going through various travails, and again, that sweep of history where this sort of thing can happen. And this is where it gets the one thing I want to just uh, chance upon, but I like where you said that in absence of the supernatural or fantastic, they always have the scope and the drama of rise and fall and peril and escape and uh, the pursuit and then uh, going into new lands as the landscape and focus of the story. But here he chances upon a scroll 
that gives gunpowder early <laughs> on in, in Kiev. And uh, he uses this later to basically make uh, IEDs, <laughs> improvised explosive devices, and uh, uses it. And, to uh, cunningly best his foes. Yep, and he, they get to Constantinople and meet a few other people historically there on that side. And this is where Louis Lamour really surprised people because they were expecting kind of the Western, but it's still that saga that's unfolding here. And that constant moving and his now mastery of alchemy and making these uh, explosive devices. And it's a trick he keeps to himself. Oh, oh, jealously guarded. Right. And But he makes a lot of friends along the way as numerous enemies. And this was meant to be a series that he wanted to keep going for. Redoing and revisiting, as well as doing his westerns. And Alas, he did not get the chance. He, yeah. he passed. He was he was quite far on in years and late in his career at the time the Walking Drum was released. We've never been treated to more. Yeah, he had plans for four of this, and it would somehow link up with the the, the sackets in some way. But the whole point was is that here he was trying to go into a new genre, and I think he was following the footsteps of Yerby and Dumas and others. I think that, you know, he was definitely inspired by that. We and also had uh, on the docket um, Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett, who is much better known for mystery novels, for like a, you know, crime, intrigue, thrillers. Uh, and it really threw people, much like with Louis L'Amour, it was very unusual to see this very large book that was a historical piece about the building of a cathedral and the lives intertwined in the community around it. Uh, because cathedral building, I mean, that was in some cases a process of a whole century. Just, you know, it was incredibly laborious oh, to build yeah, such a thing. But once you had it built, it was worth a fortune for the community. It, it brought people in from all around. Travelers, nobles, merchants, this would all be a destination. Yeah, so the lives of the humble people surrounding this large-scale event in medieval times uh, are all impacted by it. Uh, so Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth, uh, and since we're a little low on time, I'm going to gloss over a couple. Okay. Uh, the author Mary Renault, uh, R-E-N-A-U-L-T. Mm. Uh, her historical fiction was outstanding. Much of it was set in ancient Greece uh, and Rome. And uh, we're talking about uh, the bull from the sea, fire from heaven, uh, the last of the wine, the charioteer, uh, the Persian boy. Uh, these were all top tier historical fiction with an incredible in-depth knowledge of like the way in which people lived every day, the social strata, uh, the personal responsibilities, and so forth. So Mary Renault, fantastic historical author. Uh, for those who are like playing settings like Theros uh, from like fifth edition, mm -hmm. this will give you a window into ancient Greece that you should not ignore, uh, or ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And then last, uh, since we're you know, the clock is ticking on us here. Almost out of time. I wanted to mention Jason Goodwin's much more recent novel. Like we've mentioned a lot of older authors. Jason Goodwin wrote The Janissary Tree and a series of other novels afterwards involving Investigator Yashin, who at the end of the Ottoman Empire is you know, like a minor court functionary who is, because of his keen-mindedness, and intellect and curiosity uh, is an investigator uh, for the, you know, the the powerful. And when there is a mystery afoot, and in this case, it is a, a janissary uprising that is incipient to return them to power. He is, up, you know, rooting around figuring out what's taking place. Uh, Jason Goodwin's The Janissary Tree and the other. Novels. Yeah, we could also mention Name of the Rose and a few others, but Umberto Echo's Name yeah, of the Rose. Yeah, that's Wonderful. another good one, and for uh, historical fiction, although very long. I, if you appreciate the detail, you're going to love it. And I think there's a lot of stuff that you can harvest for not only just uh, historical gaming, but fantasy gaming too, and so. intrigue. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. totally worth it. So yeah, 
get from them what you will. Yeah, historical fiction is not as dry as you would think, but it's a lot more fun than you probably expected. So with that, we're going to put a bow on it and sign off. So, till next time, may the dice always always roll roll in your your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.